Well, it's always uh, it's a great day to come worship God. And uh, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. I'm David. I'm the pastor. And I want you to know you're always welcome. Uh, and if this is your first time, you're in the, coming right in the middle of the series we have going on uh, entitled Breakthrough. <clears throat> this is like the longest series I've ever done. It's like 1st of January going through the end of April, four months. Uh, but this is an important series because we're going through the gospel of Mark. Now, we're not going through it in great detail. That would take four years, not four months. But Mark is extremely, I mean, all the Gospels are important. I get that. And every time I preach from them, it's always extremely important. But Mark, the shortest Gospel, Mark wrote with the viewpoint towards the Gentiles. I mean, I mean obviously, Jews read his, read his Gospel story and was fine. But he just, he just thought about them right. And it probably got his information from Peter. And uh, wrote probably around 58, 59, 60 AD. But in writing, he was thinking about the Gentiles. And this is what he understood. That the Gentiles were people who, who didn't know the true love of God. They had been trapped. Um, they'd been trapped in paganism. They'd been trapped in that religious system they had. And they needed to break out of it. They needed to break through it. And his account of Jesus for those Gentiles provided this breakthrough in their life. It provides a breakthrough for us. Now, last week we were in the, the ninth sermon of, of this series entitled Breaking the Way God Intends Part 1 because it's a part one because it's a part two. And I told you last week, if you leave it feeling a little bit like you're missing something, that's right. That's why you got to come this week. So every one of you that were here last week, I see you. You were all back. I can just look at your faces so you're all here. But you come this way. So we're looking at, at the 10th chapter of Mark, Breaking the Way God Intended Part 2. And uh, what I want you, last week when I did that first sermon, what I wanted you to see is that if you want to break in the direction God intends, you break to the cross. If you want to break in the direction God intends, you break from the cross, into the cross. And I talked about the cross. And I talked about how things are clear at the cross. The Bible becomes clear at the cross. Life is clearest at the cross. Everything is clearest at the cross. And today, <clears throat> I want you to see why we, we break to the cross. Why is that so? And so what I want you to see from the message today is this. You break to the cross because of what Jesus did at the cross. What Jesus did at the cross is the reason you break to the cross. And so we're really going to see it from the perspective of Jesus. Now, I know normally you talk about the cross, you're going to be either in, in, you know, at the crucifixion of Jesus or something that Paul wrote. But here you have Jesus saying something about what's going to happen. So we're, we're on the road to the cross. That's, we're, we're, we're traveling that way. Now, we're at the point where Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Um, he had been there several times. If you read Mark's account of the life of Jesus, he has not yet been to Jerusalem in Mark's gospel, but he has been. John records numerous times that he had gone. And uh, he's going. And <clears throat> this time he's going. And, and Mark, what he has done is strategically, as he tells the story, he has mentioned already twice where Jesus talked about his death and resurrection. In, in the chapter 8, at Caesarea Philippi, for the first time, he tells him, hey, you guys need to understand, he's about six months out from the cross. He says, the, the Son of Man, that's Jesus. The Son of Man is always referenced to Jesus. That's his way of describing he's the Messiah. When people say Jesus never talked about himself being the Messiah, they don't understand the New Testament at all. When he references the Son of Man, he is saying, I am the Messiah. I mean, that's, that's what it means. That's how they understood it. And so he, he, he's saying that I'm going there. And to them, to their mind, they couldn't believe this. 
Because they all believed, by the time we were in chapter 8, a couple weeks ago we saw that Jesus is the Messiah. They all believed that, but they believed he was the type of Messiah that, that they thought he should be. That he was going to come, he was going to destroy all the enemies of Israel. This is the, the Romans, and established God's kingdom forever where the Jews would reign, and they would be there with him. That's how they understand it, and he knew that's how they understand it. That's why he keep having to tell them this. We saw last week as they were traveling, he told them again, and Mark says, actually, he kept telling them over and over you got to get this. you got to get this. We're going to see him telling them one more time now. He is heading to Jerusalem. they got to get this. In verse 32, this is what it says. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was elevated. They went up. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. I told you last week that, you know, when you think of Jesus and all the times they traveled and walked, probably not all think they walked in a single file line. Jesus says kind of traveled together. But here the idea is that there was such a sense of urgency that Jesus was walking at a pace that they were trying to keep up. They were amazed. That was the 12. And those who followed were fearful. That's probably another group who were following, tacking along. They were amazed at what Jesus was doing and fearful. He's going to Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem want to kill him. They want to kill Jesus. And he's going there with an intensity and a sense of purpose. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to them, him. So he took them aside once again. Says, well, here's what's going to happen. We pick up verse 33 saying, behold, listen, we are going up to the Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. He's already told them this. The Jewish religious leaders, those were the priests, chief priests and scribes, they wanted to kill Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to be delivered to them. And they will condemn him to death. And then, we'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, you kind of understand what this means. Jews hated Gentiles. They hated being ruled by the Gentiles. They believed the Messiah was going to free them from the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying the religious leaders are going to give the Messiah over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And oh, by the way, in three days later, he will rise again. You got, you got this. The traveler. Do you think they get it by now? Do you think finally they understand what's going to happen? <laughs> Verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, Zebedee, came up to Jesus. Now, James and John are his cousins. Matthew chapter 20 has the parallel account. It says their mama came. So Jesus, John and James' mama, Salome, was the sister of Jesus' mama, Mary. And what they want is they, they're all coming thinking they're going to leverage their mama because their mama's related to his mama and it's going to look like his mama wants this. These guys were from the southern part of Galilee where everybody did what their mama wanted. That's how you got it. It's like it's in the south in Texas. Mama said, all right, we're doing what mama said. That's how it works. Works in my house. Mama says, we do. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. They're leveraging that. Whatever we ask, do for us. In 36, he says, all right, what do you want me to do for you? He knows. He says, what do you want me to do? You got to tell me. Tell me what your mama thinks my mama wants me to do. <laughs> and they said to him, get this, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. 
Jesus, we know you're the Messiah. You're going to come in all your glory and defeat everybody. We want to be there sitting with blood on the two highest places, the two highest, the right and the left. And they didn't get a thing. You know, all the pictures have Jesus with long brown hair. I always picture Jesus as being bald from pulling his hair out. <laughs> These guys, I mean, are you, are you kidding me? Ah, but he's so patient. But Jesus, he said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, the idea of cup back then, and when they took the Passover meal, they had the cup always represented what it held. So whatever the cup held was what was important. Here is the, the understanding would be the cup of suffering. Jesus is talking about his suffering. You want to be on, on the places of promise. Can you deal with the suffering? The baptism is, you know, we baptize by immersion because that's what the word means, to be poured into, poured under. Um, so here what it's talking about is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experience a baptism. It's this baptism of suffering. It's all going to come overwhelming to me. Do you guys actually think you can participate in what I'm going to do? Then they gave their reply, and they said to him, we are able. Oh, yeah, Jesus, we can do that. Because they had no clue. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, what I'm going to talk about, what's going to happen to me, is going to happen to you two guys. Now, James, the older of the two, was the first of the apostles, the twelve, to be martyred. I mean, Judas took his own life, but James was the first to be martyred. John lived and, and died of natural causes. He lived to about 100 or so AD. But the early church writers, especially guys like Ignatius and Eusebius, Eusebius tell us he suffered greatly. He was tortured. I mean, they, they did partake of that cup. Jesus says this, but to sit on my right or my left, this is not for mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. So here's what he's saying is, who sits on my right and left? Here's what he's saying. It don't matter. It's not, I'm, I'm not the one that decides that. It's already been, God takes care of that. Now, what he's really saying, and I'm going to paraphrase, is it don't matter. He may be even saying, I don't really know. It don't matter. Now, here's what I find amusing. How many people go to great lengths to try to figure out who it is that's going to sit on the right and the left. They still do that to the day. I hear people tell, talk about that. In fact, they would do that in this church. People would probably come up to me today to tell me they know, except by now when I'm through with this message, you're going to realize I probably shouldn't say that to him. Because he's probably going to say something really ugly to me, and you're probably right. Here's the thing. This is important. I guess. If Jesus don't really know, you don't know. That's a solid biblical truth. Here's something else. If it don't matter to Jesus, it don't matter to me. We need to worry and be concerned about the things Jesus is concerned about, not the things he obviously don't give a rip about. Oh, but it's not over yet. Verse 41, on hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. No kidding. Did they not see how this was coming? Especially Peter. I mean, you got to think Peter. Peter's like, I'm the rock, man. Jesus already called me. So two weeks ago, I'm the rock. I'm the one in the place of prominence. So calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. He says, worrying about greatness is what the Gentiles do. You're acting like Gentiles, a bunch of pagans. That's what he's saying, like a bunch of pagans. 
Have you learned nothing in the almost three years you've been with me? Have you not picked up on anything? And then to clarify it, verse 43. But this is not, a, but it is not this way among you. In other words, this isn't your way. Any of you guys ever watched The Mandalorian? Yeah, this is the way? That ain't it. Okay? If you don't watch The Mandalorian, it's a cultural joke. You don't get, can't help you, not my problem, that's yours. But there's going to be another one in a minute, so you don't get either. Just hang on. But whoever wishes or desires, whoever wants to become great among you, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first, number one among all of you, shall be a slave to all. You want to be great? You want to be number one. Who doesn't want to be number one? Who doesn't want to be great? A friend of mine wrote a book, and uh, I was reading, and he sent me a copy of a short book about, it's about our high school. And he was talking about it, where we went to high school, the time we went to high school, our high, it, it, the jocks, the, the football players, you know, how well we were treated because we, we were you know, phenomenal teams back in the 70s and won state championships and semifinals and all that. And we were treated like royalty. I'm remembering back and saying, yeah, that's true. I remember those days. Those were good days. If you were one of us, you know, that's what it is. Be great. Be number one. Here's what he said. You got to be a servant and a slave. The word servant is the word diakonos. The word slave is the word doulos. Uh, they're not synonymous, but they're parallel and they reinforce each other. To be, to be a servant, it, that word diakonos, we, we, the verbal form diakoneo is used in verse 45. It's to serve, to wait. It's the most menial of tasks. John 13, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He has 12 guys in his room, including Judas, who's about to betray him. And he gets on his hands and he gets on his knees and he takes his hands and he washes the feet of the 12, the lowest job you could do in the house as their servant. And that's what it means to serve. Ah, the word diakonos, we usually think of deacon. Only two times, maybe three, is it ever technically used of a deacon. The, one, the, third, the third time we Baptists don't like because it has to do with Phoebe in Romans 16. And Phoebe, there's a female deacon so we don't like that. We Baptists, we don't talk about Phoebe. No, no, no. We don't do that. That was the other cultural reference. The Bruno and Phoebe. I guess that's not going to, I'm not going to do that at 11. If y'all don't got it, they're not going to get it. And we don't like Phoebe. We don't like Phoebe. And we forget sometimes that almost every time it's used, it means to serve. The word for slave is one who is owned by another who was told to do what to do by another person. He says, you want to be great. This needs to describe you. A servant and a slave to everyone. But he's not through. He hasn't even got to the best part yet. Here's what he says. For the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, that's him, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has so many great sayings. And you could argue everything Jesus said was great, and I got that. But there's so many things that Jesus says we latch on to. This gets overlooked so often because this is a transformative statement of Christ. He says, I, as the Messiah, did not come for you or anyone to serve me. Now, their view was he was going to establish his great kingdom. He was going to rule over it forever. Since he was the king of kings and the lord of lords, everybody would serve him. And Jesus said, that's not why I came. 
I came to do the serving. Now, this is a radical concept to them. This is unique to Christianity. Part of my responsibility as your pastor is to my life have studied the other major religions in the world. Let me tell you, serving ain't in their life. Not like this. The concept of giving yourself as a servant or a slave to the benefit of others, that's not there. Not in the heart and soul of who they are. It is for us. It transformed Western culture. I mean, think about it. Anybody in high school or college, you know, your kids are doing that, or grandkids, somewhere along the line, if they want to get into a college, if they want to get into a scholarship, they got to list where they've served. Tell me about all your service. And if you haven't served, and, and the, where I got, went to college at Trinity, you ain't getting in if you haven't in your high school year served somewhere. And you really ain't going to get a scholarship. They want to know, so where does that come from? You think it comes from the world of skepticism or the world of scholarship? No, it comes from the world of Christ. It's what we expect. And it was a radical way of thinking. See, back then, everything was about a hierarchy. We already saw that with James and John. Everybody's a hierarchy. Where do you rank in the hierarchy? Where are you in the hierarchy? We want to be number one. And the, you know, the rich were served by the poor. The powerful were served by the weak. Women served men, period. Everywhere in that culture, that's what they did. Unless you were wealthy, wealthy, and you had slaves. You served men. Kids served parents. Slaves served, and servants served their masters. And everybody served the state. Until Jesus came. And said the hierarchy doesn't exist. And Paul took a hold of that. And Paul would write, there is no difference between a man and a woman. There is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. There's no difference between a free man and a slave. In the eyes of God, you all have equal value and worth. And this transformed people's lives. And they flocked to Christianity. They came to Christianity. They flooded to Christianity because people had value and worth. In a time, that day in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, if, if a woman had a baby and the, her husband did not want that baby, she had no say, no say, no say. If her husband did not want that baby, they'd take that baby and would abandon it at a site somewhere and give it over to the fate of the gods. Whatever happened, happened. That baby would either die of the elements, be eaten, or starve. And then the Christians, though, would know about these places, and they would go there on a daily basis, and they would go and they would take those babies and bring them to their homes and raise them. And the women whose babies were abandoned would know. They would figure and find that out. You don't think they appreciated what the Christians did, what their own husband and own culture wouldn't do? When, when diseases came, when pandemics came, and, and people risk being wiped out because if they get a disease, they couldn't win over it. They would be isolated, quarantined. They would be shut off. That's the pagan way of doing things, by the way, to shut people off. And they would be abandoned over. Even if it was your spouse, even if it was your kids or your parents, you would leave them because you couldn't risk getting sick. You may slip them some food and water in somewhere, but you stayed away from them, except for Christians. They would see and hear about their neighbors being sick and suffering and hurting, and Christians would come over. And they would sit beside them and hold their hand and feed them and share Jesus with them and love them because that's what Christians did. Because Christianity was radically different than anything the world 
had to offer. Understand this. Breaking the way God intends is a life of serving. Just ask Jesus. That is the way. That is the life. Jesus said, I didn't come so you could serve me. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for me. That word ransom is important. It means just what we think it means. It's to pay a price for someone's freedom. We think of someone being kidnapped, you pay a ransom. Back then, it wasn't so much kidnapping. What normally it was common was that people would be in great debt, and they couldn't pay their debt. And so either they'd be thrown into debtor's prison after a while, or they would become a slave or a servant to the one they owed money to. Now, in our culture, we have the same problem. We can't pay our debt, but we don't have debtor's prison, and you don't become slaves or servants. You just never pay it off, get bad credit, and eventually do bankruptcy, and you start the whole process over again. But there, to ransom was to pay a price for something. Jesus was the ransom. He was the price that was paid. Now, in the early church, this, is, this was a huge teaching. This is one of the major ways they expressed their faith, that Jesus paid the price for your sin. He redeemed you. He bought you back. Sometimes the people get lost in all that in, in, in early church and worry about who was the price paid to. Because, you know, when we pay a ransom, who's the price paid to? And they came up with all sorts of theories. Some, eventually it was like, did they pay it to God or pay it to the devil? And they realized those are both lousy ways of looking at this. God didn't pay himself a ransom. And, and the devil never held man captive and God didn't pay the devil. That's just, don't think that way. The fact of the matter is who he paid it to isn't what's important. In fact, that doesn't matter at all. What matters is the price that was paid. What was the price? Who was the price paid? Jesus. He was the price paid. It says for many. The word for speaks of substitution, of taking the place of another. Jesus is the substitute. It's so important. He died in our place. That's what we teach. He died for us. That's an old school biblical theme. In the Old Testament, when people sinned, what did they have to do? They had to bring a sacrifice. That sacrifice was a substitute for them. The eldest child. Any of you the oldest child? I'm the eldest. I'm the eldest. And by the way, we are number one, in case anybody, we are the In Jewish life, the eldest child belonged to God. You had to pay price to redeem that child back. That's a biblical thought. Jesus paid a price for many. Who are the many? Any that believe. The many who believe. It's not a set number or a percentage. Don't go down that road. People say, did Jesus die for everyone? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yeah, he died for everyone because everyone come to Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he died for you. If you're watching on live stream, he died for you. You can trust Jesus right now. But the practical side is he only died for those people who really trust him. If you never trust Jesus, the price he paid does you no good. It's like someone giving you a gift you never open. What good does it do you? What good does it do if you get a gift and never open it? Jesus died for us. In fact, here's the thing. At the cross. Jesus died in our place and paid the price for our salvation. This was in response to our sin. At the cross, he died in our place. We deserved it, but he paid the price. He paid it, so you and I wouldn't have to do that. That was the price of my rebellion against God. That was the price of my sin. On the road to the cross, Jesus is heading out that way to do one thing, to die for you, to die for you. To die for you. So what happened at the cross? Let me share with you in the next few minutes. Three things. 
that happened at the cross. First, Jesus died for our forgiveness and our salvation. He died for us, for our benefit. His death benefits us. It provides forgiveness. It provides the means of salvation. John 14, Jesus 14, 6, hours before he was going to the cross, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He said, there ain't no way to ever get to the Father unless you come through me. I'm the only way. Because why? He was paying the price. And we live, in a, we live in a world where I know people like to think we're all religions are the same, and I get that. Unless you're a Christian, what disturbs me, what blows my mind is how Christians out there think, well, you know, there are more ways to get to God than Jesus. How can you think that? Do you not understand your own faith? Do you not understand what Jesus did? He died. He did. God sent Jesus from heaven, you know, from all glory, to this earth, to the very people that rejected him. And Jesus died for the very people killing him. And God raised him back to life for all of us. You don't find that anywhere else but Jesus. He paid the price. He died for our sin and our salvation. Second thing, Jesus reveals the mind and heart of God. This is, this is God's desire. This is the mind, the heart of God at work. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Romans 5 eight says, God showed his great love for us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God sent Jesus because God loves us. Even though we're rebelling against God, even though we're fighting against God, even though we're cursing God, to this day, Jesus came for us. That is the heart and mind of God. When people say, you know, God is this God of anger, or God, you know, I don't want to follow God because he's a cruel, he's a dick, oh, this, oh my gosh. They don't understand God at all. You go to the cross, there's the heart, mind, soul of God. The third thing that happened at the cross is Jesus revealed the way of life for his followers. He showed us the way. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I see Peter telling Mark, 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 Mark. When the Jesus said for the first time that he was going to die, I didn't get it. You know, I, I rebuked him. He called me Satan. I told you that, Mark. And then, and then he says that we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Mark, we, we had no clue what that meant. We, we were struggling with that. I mean, we didn't, we didn't know. We didn't know what it meant to follow Jesus until Jesus went to the cross, until he denied himself everything, picked up his cross mark, and he started walking to Calvary. Then we understood. And when he died, I knew what it meant that he died for me. And when he came back to life, Mark, it all made sense. A few years after Peter told Mark about Jesus, Nero would take Peter, and most likely on the same day, and Paul, and he would kill him. And he would take Peter to crucify him, and they tell us, those early guys who knew far more than we know, that Peter said, I can't die like Jesus. 
just turned me upside down. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I know this. Peter died. He drank the cup. He lived the baptism. He followed Jesus all the way. That's what it means to serve. To break the way Jesus broke is always to break through the cross. And you break to the cross because at the cross, Jesus paid the price for our salvation. Have you broken to the cross yet? Have you in your life come to trust Jesus? You need to do that. I mean, today would be great if not over these next few weeks. I mean, we're preaching about Jesus, teaching about Jesus. This is the time to give your life to Christ. If you want to do that today, you can. You can do it on the live stream. You can give your life to Jesus and trust him to save you. In a few moments when we're standing here, if, if you want to come and talk to one of us and say, you know, I've, I've given my life to Christ or I want to give my life to Christ, you can do that. Ladies, there's usually another woman here. You can talk to her if you want. Listen, you may not understand why we stand here. We stand here as an invitation for you to pray, invitation for you to talk to us, whatever your need is. But if you want to give your life to Christ, you can. If you'd rather wait, you know, go out and go to the Welcome Center and write it on the Connect card, you can. You can contact us later, but give your life to Christ. Some of you, most of you are already believers. Do you serve? I mean, do you? Do you forgive the people that wrong you? Do, do you serve the people you struggle with? Do you serve your family? Do you serve that crazy neighbor whose yard is never the way you want it? Do you serve that coworker who's always stabbing you in the back? Do you serve people like Jesus dead? Why not? It's what we're called to do. Maybe you'd like to come and pray with one of us, but whatever. Maybe you'd like to join our church. You can join our church. I don't, I don't know what you need to do. I can't tell you except for this. You need to break the way Jesus broke, the way God intended. You need to break to the cross. So, Father, Jesus gave himself for us. It's still hard for me to understand that, to grasp that. It's what he did. It's what he calls us to do. Help us break that way. Help us to break the way you intend to give our life. As Jesus gave his life as a ransom to us, for us, let us give our life back to him and trust him as Savior. And then let us give our life to people. Not that they would serve us, but that we would serve them. This is the way. This is what you called us to do. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So let us follow Jesus. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? We'll be here.